our text for this morning is Psalm 12. It's not difficult for us, people of God, to see the relevance of this psalm to our own times. David complains here in this psalm of a time in the history of the nation of Israel when wickedness was prevalent and the godly seemed very few in number. He complains then of something that we ourselves have often complained of about our own times, prevailing wickedness and the vanishing and diminishing of those who serve God. What may be more difficult for us to understand is the organization of the material of this psalm. Especially, I think, we tend to have a problem with the last verse of the psalm. Where David, after saying in verse 7, You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever, says, The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That verse seems to us, I think, to be tacked on. It would make more sense to our minds that that verse would be with verse 2, and that the psalm would conclude, actually, with verse 7. So we have to ask the question, why is the material of the psalm organized in this way? Why is it that David ends the way he does? with that statement, again, about the prevailing wickedness of his times. We have here in this psalm a structure, I think, that's similar to the structure of Psalm 8. You remember that Psalm 8 began and ended with the, begins and ends with the very same words. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth in closing the rest of the psalm then in a kind of envelope or framing the rest of the psalm with those words. I think we have in Psalm 12 that same kind of framing structure, that same kind of envelope structure that puts similar material at the beginning and end and then puts the rest of the material within that envelope or within that frame. David, in fact, gives us a clue to this. In verse 1, he begins with direct address to the Lord. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. And then we do not have any more direct address to the Lord until we get to verse 7. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The sections, then, that frame the rest of the psalm are verses 1 and 2, where David first makes petition and then explains the reason for that petition. Verse 2, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and double heart they speak. And then in verse 7, the rest of the frame, you shall keep them, O Lord, directly addressing the Lord and talking to the Lord about his work of preservation, and then explains... What lies behind that petition in verse 8? The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. 
In between then those two enclosing sections, verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 and 8, you have David's answer to the problem he's talking about, to that prevailing wickedness in verses 3 to 6. So that's how the psalm is structured. Now, in this psalm, David does not make any personal petitions. He does make petition in the first verse, but he does not say there, Save me, O Lord, for the godly man ceases. And he does not talk about any personal or private complaint. That is, he's not concerned here about what's happening to himself, particularly. But David is rather, in this psalm, an observer. He observes the prevailing wickedness of his times, and he responds to that prevailing wickedness with the words of the psalm. In other words, what we see here is David taking the position that we ourselves often take with regard to our own society. We step back. We take a look at that society objectively, and we see what David saw in his time. We see how wickedness prevails, how wickedness triumphs. And we can therefore learn from this psalm how to respond to what we observe in that society. Just as David responded to the wickedness of his times, so we can respond to the wickedness of our times. So we consider this psalm under the theme, Trusting in the Lord when the times are evil. Trusting in the Lord when the times are evil. First, praying for salvation, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, relying on the Lord's work and words, verses 3 to 6. And finally, looking to the Lord's preservation, verses 7 and 8. We look first then at verses 1 and 2, where David prays to the Lord for salvation. David begins the psalm then with a petition and a very, very brief petition. Two words, if you include his address to the Lord. Help, Lord. That word help is actually the word that is almost everywhere else in the Old Testament translated as save. And I think it's important that we understand that because it makes clear to us that what David is talking about here in this psalm is a spiritual matter. Help can come in many forms and help can be needed in many circumstances. David is not praying for help in general, but he's praying specifically for the Lord's salvation. Save, Lord. In verse 2, then, David gives the reason for that petition, or in the rest of verse 1, excuse me, David gives the reason for that petition. The godly man ceases he says, the faithful vanish from among the sons 
of man. The, the godly then are growing few in number. That's what David sees. Some of them perhaps have been killed by wicked men. Others have gone into hiding, as many did in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, in the, during the uh, time of the kingdom, the, ten, tribe of the, the kingdom of the ten tribes. Others perhaps have become apostates, forsaking their faith, and so David sees this alarming thing happening that the righteous are growing few in number. It may be that David, in fact, is talking about the times when Saul was persecuting him in the wilderness. In fact, in, verse, in 1 Samuel 22, we read about some of the early days of David's fleeing from Saul. We, sit, we find there everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So David must have felt himself pretty much alone among the people of God at that time. Only 400 supporters, and those 400 supporters, the discontents, and the people in trouble in the society of his time. The godly man, ceasing. He must have felt like Elijah did in the times of Ahab and Jezebel, when he prayed after Mount Carmel, Lord, I'm the only one left among all this nation who serves you. David's concern, then, is a godly concern. And it's a godly concern because he is concerned especially about the glory of God. He wants to see God honored. And especially, he wants to see God honored in Israel. He wants to see God's works respected and praised. And instead, the righteous are diminishing. The faithful are failing. There are very few left. In addition to that, of course, David sees then a corresponding increase in the number of the wicked. That's verse 2. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and double heart, they speak. It's very important to recognize there that David emphasizes entirely what comes from the mouth of these people. He's talking entirely there about their speech. In fact, the verse again begins and ends with the words, they speak, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. So the whole emphasis of those verses is on their speech. Now that may seem to us a rather unimportant matter. He doesn't talk about their deeds. He doesn't talk about them actually, at least yet, oppressing the righteous. He doesn't talk about great wickedness in the sense that these men are doing such horrible deeds that He's convinced they must be an abomination to the Lord. What he talks about is their speech. That seems to us perhaps a rather minor reason for complaint. 
And yet, people of God, I think, if we think that way, it's because we do not recognize the importance of the tongue. Remember what James says in chapter 1? If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that one's religion is useless. And in chapter 3, remember what James says about the power of the tongue? Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. What David sees then is evil speech. He looks first at what the word at the words that these men are speaking. They speak idly, every man with his neighbor. Or they speak vanity, every man with his neighbor. Their speech is not of significant things, not of important things, certainly not of the works of God or the honor of God or any such thing, but their speech is about trivial things, unimportant things, things that don't matter. Because they have nothing important to talk about, or nothing important anyway that they want to talk about, and thus expose the wickedness of their hearts, they speak emptily, they speak idly, they speak few words, uh, many words, but they speak of trivial and unimportant things. After looking at their words, David looks at the lips from which those words come, and he says, those lips are flattering or smooth lips. They then, with their lips, do not speak what is in their hearts. They speak what their neighbor wants to hear or what they think their neighbor wants to hear. They speak pleasant things. They speak smooth things. They speak things that are not, however, what is within them. And so he comes at last to their hearts. They speak with a double heart, or in the Hebrew, they speak with heart and heart. They are, they are of two minds. There are two thoughts within them. There are the thoughts that they don't want known, and that they will not speak, and there are the thoughts, then, that they speak to hide what is really in their hearts. It is to that wickedness, that wickedness of the tongue, that David is responding here in these first two verses, when he says, Save, Lord. And he asks, then, that God save his people from this prevailing wickedness, that is, that he saved them from falling into that wickedness which prevails in their own days, and that he preserved for himself, since the faithful are vanishing, that he preserved for himself a people in this evil time.
That brings us into the second part of the psalm. David trusts in the word, works and words of the Lord. And here, as we said, he goes into more detail about how he responds, is responding to the evil of his times. Those verses, verses 3 to 6, are divided into two parts themselves. Verses 3 and 4 speak about how David responds to the wicked, or better even, how the Lord responds to the wicked. And verses 5 and 6, how the Lord responds to the righteous. David says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speak, speak proud, tongues that speak proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. Now there's two ways to understand that first expression, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. There are, there's a common figure of speech by which we designate a part of something when we mean the whole. So it could be that David is saying here, may the Lord cut off those who speak with flattering lips. The problem with that is that that verb, cut off, governs the other two clauses of the verse. The tongue that speaks proud things, those who have said, with our tongues we will prevail. So David is asking that the Lord cut off three things. Cut off their lips, cut off their tongues, and finally, cut off their persons. And so I think we have to take that first expression as literal, at least in the sense that David does not mean cut off the persons who have, who speak with flattering lips, but cut off their lips. A rather grotesque image. Cut off their lips. They speak with flattering lips, cut off their flattering lips. That is, put a stop to the way that they use their mouth. He goes even farther. He says, don't cut off only their lips, but cut off their tongues as well. And the tongue that speaks proud things. Now that word proud there is actually better translated big. The tongue that speaks big things. Or great things. There may be an implication of pride behind it. But what David refers to is the words that those tongues speak. With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Those are big words. They're saying we'll use our tongues as we wish. We'll accomplish our purposes with our tongues. We'll do whatever we like and we'll please ourselves with our tongues. Those lips belong to us not to anyone else. We have no master who can tell us how to use our tongues. Who is Lord over us? Now they don't say those words directly. They don't say those words out loud. That's the kind of thing they want to keep hidden and that's why their hearts are double. But their words nevertheless imply it. And their words imply it because of what is in their hearts and because what does come out of their mouths is vanity. 
What comes out of their mouth is not righteousness, not truth, not praise of God, not honor for God. What comes out of their mouth is vanity. And when when they speak vanity in that way, then they're really denying, essentially, aren't they, that God can tell them how to use their tongues. That God can say to them, you may not talk that way. You must say these things. You must talk this way. These are the words I give you to speak. They say, no, no, we have no master. We have no Lord. Our tongues belong to ourselves. And with our tongues, we will accomplish our own purposes. Our tongues will serve us rather than God. So they are tongues that speak great things. And David therefore says, cut them off. Cut off their lips because they flatter. Cut off their tongues because they speak these great things. And finally, cut off their persons. Those who have said such words. In verses 5 and 6, then, David talks about how the Lord responds with regard to the poor and needy. Now, in verse 5, David puts words into the mouth of God. Notice that. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. David could have spoken in the third person. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now the Lord will arise. He will set him in the safety for which he yearns. But he puts the words into the mouth of God to give them more force. It's not David here talking about God, but he's saying by a rhetorical device. This is what God says. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. And of course, David is recalling what God does actually say. We call it a rhetorical device, but it's not a falsehood that David puts into the mouth of God. These are words that God speaks. The Lord then is responding to David's word prayer in verse 1. Where David says, save, Lord. The Lord says, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise. The poor and needy are, of course, the godly and the faithful, of whom David says in verse 1 that they are vanishing. God says in response to that, I will arise, and I will arise now. David has called upon God. David has prayed for salvation. And God responds to that and says, Now is the time. Now I will come. And I will save my poor and oppressed people. Again, the word that's translated safety here in the last part of verse 5 is the same word that's used in verse 1 when David says, Save, Lord. 
I will set him in the salvation for which he yearns. Making very clear that this is a direct response to David's petition. God then answers David's prayer and says, In answer to your prayer, I say to you, for the oppression of the needy, of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise. That word of the Lord is certain. That's the point of verse 6. We have a paragraph break between verses 5 and 6 in this translation. It doesn't belong there, I think. Verses 5 and 6 belong together, as I pointed out earlier, and verses 7 and 8 are a new paragraph. David, there in verse 6, says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Notice again, he's talking about speech, this time about the Lord's speech. And there's a direct contrast in those verses with the, con- with the speech of the wicked. The speech of the wicked is mixed speech. That is, it's flattering speech, and flattery is always a mixture, of course. It doesn't reflect what's in the heart. It reflects what the person thinks his neighbor wants to hear. So there's a mix there. And the verse speaks of doubleness of heart. There are two things in his heart. His heart is not unified. So his words are not pure. Well, the words of the Lord are pure, David says. Words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. That is, there is no dross in God's word. There is pure as silver that has been refined seven times to remove every last speck of dross that may be in in it. His words are faithful words. His words are pure words. And notice that David talks about God's words in a general way. He says that all of God's words are like this. The words that he speaks to his people through the mouth of the prophets. The words that he speaks to us through the scriptures. His words are pure words. Refined seven times. There is no dross. There is no mixture in them. They are all truth and honesty and sincerity and purity and rightness. Nothing of wickedness or flatter or duplicity or anything of that sort in them at all. That general truth with regard to God's words, David takes them and applies specifically to the words that God speaks in verse 5. Where God says, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Well, there may well be a question in the minds of some whether God's words are faithful. If the godly are vanishing from among the children of men, if wickedness is prevalent, then what about God's word? He's spoken many times about his righteousness, about his judgment. Why has this situation come about then? Well, there may be no answer to that question, why has this wickedness come about? But we know this, nevertheless, that the words of the Lord are pure words. He has spoken. 
He has said, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Those words are true. There's no duplicity in those words. There's no concealing by God of what's in his heart in those words as there is with the words of men. They're true and faithful words. And that brings us then to the third part of the psalm. David expects preservation. You will keep them, O Lord. You will preserve them from this generation forever. Verses 7 and 8. Now that follows, of course, directly upon what David had already said in verses 5 and 6. That's why it's somewhat difficult to discern the structure of this psalm. Nevertheless, what David is saying here is a conclusion that he draws from verses 5 and 6. The Lord says in verse 5, I will set him in the salvation for which he yearns. And then David says, well, then I can draw this conclusion from those words. God will keep them. He will preserve them from this generation forever. That means that God will keep the godly. That God will preserve for himself a people on earth in spite of the prevailing wickedness of the times in which David and we live. Now there's a very striking thing in this verse, something that we've noted in other psalms as well, and uh, that's important to note, I think. And that is that our translation of the first line is not quite accurate. It's really, you shall keep him, Lord. And then the second part, you shall preserve them, switching from the singular to the plural. Now David does exactly the same thing in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, the faithful ones disappear from among the sons of men. He switches from the singular to the plural there also. And his concern in this verse, verse six, 7 anyway, is to show us that God's preservation is both individual and collective. He preserves each one of his people. He preserves them all. You shall keep him, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And again, that is the answer to David's concern in verse 1 where he says the godly man ceases. Well, is he going to cease altogether? No, he's not. Because the Lord will keep them. He will preserve them. We need also to ask what that preservation means. Well, it doesn't mean, people of God, that he will keep us from all trouble. It doesn't mean that he will prevent the wicked from oppressing us. It doesn't mean that he will keep the wicked from killing his people. None of that is included in that word preserve. What it does mean, however, is that he makes them spiritually safe. 
He will not suffer them to be tempted or tried beyond what they are able to endure. Always he so limits temptations and trials that those temptations and trials do not go beyond our capacity by his grace to resist the temptation, to endure through the trial to the end. He always provides a way of escape. It means in the second place that he will not suffer us to fall into irrecoverable sin. We do sin. But never, never will God so permit us to fall into sin that there's no way back again. Always the way of repentance and conversion is open for us. He does not allow us to fall into irrecoverable sin. It means, in the third place, that no one can pluck us from his hand. That's what Jesus said in verse in John 10 when he talked about being the good shepherd of his people. No one is able to pluck them out of my hand. It means that no one can separate us from his love, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Neither height nor depth nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love always reaches us. And because of all these things then, these ways in which God preserves us, our inheritance is guaranteed, as 1 Peter 1 says. He preserves us unto that salvation which we expect at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will keep him, O Lord. You will preserve them from this generation, that is, from this evil generation in which I live, and forever to the very end of the world. Now that fact that God keeps his people does not, of course, change the facts about the earth and the times in which David lives. And that, I think, is why David concludes the way he does. You will keep them, O Lord. But he's not saying here that means then that this wickedness is going to go away now at this time. He goes right back to the wickedness of his own times to show us, people of God, that the fact of the Lord's salvation and preservation of his people does not necessarily mean a change in the evil that we see prevailing in our own times. It can happen. It has happened in the past. During the Reformation, for example, and during several Reformations in the history of the Kingdom of Judah, does happen sometimes. Doesn't necessarily happen. God sometimes leaves things as they are for his own good and wise purposes. The facts don't change. What changes is ourselves, our own attitude towards them. God gives us if not hope that the circumstances will change, at least the confidence that he will not, and that his promises to us will not fail. 
The wicked prowl on every side, David says. They're all around. They're going about freely. They're doing as they please. There's no one to restrict them. They're completely uninhibited in their wickedness. And they're completely uninhibited in their wickedness because vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That is, men don't value righteousness. They don't value truth. They don't value the things that belong to God. They exalt vileness. They exalt wickedness. They value the very things that they ought to hate. Evil is ascendant. Even evil men are appointed and elected to places of power in the world because people want wicked men over them so that they can be free to do their own evil. The facts don't change. And perhaps, people of God, they won't change in our times either. We don't know what God's purposes are. We pray that God will change them. But we know that he in his wisdom sometimes does not change them. But what he does do is he speaks his word to us. He says, I will set him in the salvation for which he yearns. He assures us of his preservation. David teaches us then in this psalm how to respond with regard to God's people to ascendant evil, to prevailing wickedness. He prays for salvation. Save, Lord. He reassures himself with respect to God's judgment on the wicked. The Lord will cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks proud things. He reminds himself of the certainty of God's promises. God has spoken of the salvation of his people. His words are pure. He looks to God's preserving power. You will keep them, O Lord. You will preserve them from this generation forever. Having heard the preaching of God's word, let us say amen.